Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. In this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Stephen Wellam on the person of Christ. This conversation lasted for about an hour, so we divided it up into two episodes. In the first part of this episode, you will hear the historical development of the doctrine of the person of Christ. We hope this will be profitable to you. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick. And we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Stephen Wellam. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Dr. Wellam. A real privilege to be with you today. And as you are a first-time guest on our show, um, would you mind just introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, Well, I teach teach theology, systematic theology, at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've, I've been here since uh, 1999. Uh, I'm married to my, my wonderful wife, uh, Karen. It's going on our 37th year, and, and we have five adult children. So that sort of puts me in terms of age. Uh, prior to coming to Southern, I've, I've taught on the west coast of, of Canada at Trinity Western University for a few years. I've pastored in South Dakota. And I grew up in Canada and uh, a wonderful church, a wonderful family, Christian home, Christian family, uh, Trinity Baptist Church in Burlington, Ontario, and uh, sat under the, the ministry of uh, William Payne, Payne from uh, originally from England and uh, grew up in a Reformed Baptist community and and uh, was really taught well and uh, then went did my theological education at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the 80s and 90s. And so... That's a little bit about uh, my background, and uh, now I'm enjoying my time at Southern and trying to raise up um, you know, another generation to faithfully uh, expound and preach God's Word and teach God's Word and to be really theologically grounded as they do so. Well, we are thankful to have you on, and um, one uh, thing that we are excited about is uh, a topic that you have written multiple books on. Um, and you have written on the topic of the person of Christ. So let's just get into that, our topic today, the person of Christ. What foundation do you recommend in your, in your book that people develop in their Christology? And what are some wrong foundations that people often build on uh, in the doctrine of Christology? Yeah, a really, really important question, right? Uh, when you think of, of foundation for any area of theology, but uh, specifically Christology, I mean, the, the most important foundation is, is Scripture itself, so that uh, you know, we only know uh, who God is uh, uh, by his self-revelation. Yes, uh, he discloses himself in, in creation and uh, in some sense in us, you know, as we're image bearers and we're surrounded by his uh, revelation, but we need a word revelation. We need uh, his uh, to disclose his plan and his purposes, his promises. And so scripture is our, our final authority. And to do you know any theology, but particularly uh, Christology, we need to know the whole counsel of God. So my concern is, is that uh, we do theology, uh, not just on isolated uh, texts here and there, uh, but a whole Bible, uh, because you can't understand the Jesus 
um, of the New Testament without the Old Testament, right? The Jesus of the Bible is God the Son from eternity, and uh, the triune God has made himself known across redemptive history, and uh, all of that is foundational and important to understand rightly uh, who Jesus is, who the God, who Jesus of the Bible is. And uh, we have people that will try, they've done this in the history, uh, most recent history in terms of often liberal theology to reconstruct uh, Jesus, uh, get behind the text. They don't receive scripture as God's self-attesting word and as true and authoritative and reliable. And so they try to go to historical sources uh, using the Bible plus outside the Bible, reconstruct what they call the Jesus of history. Uh, but that is a futile uh, enterprise. You'll never be able to say anything true or objective or theological about who he is unless you start with God's self-revelation and uh, the full authority of scripture. So to do Christology and to say anything about Christ, uh, you need uh, a whole Bible, you need an authoritative Bible, a true Bible, uh, a reliable Bible that actually not only describes his, his, uh, you know, his works and his actions and his speech and his, his teaching, uh, but also you know, teaches us and interprets all of that uh, according to God's revelation. So you need that and uh, an entire theology to build a foundation on a Christology. So any attempt to understand who Jesus is, either outside of scripture uh, or built upon some kind of reconstruction of history or, you know, your religious experience or my feelings of Jesus or so on, as, as many would do, all of these are false foundations we can only build on what God has said and revealed to us about the Lord Jesus. And so sola scriptura is foundational. And of course, uh, with sola scriptura and scripture as our final authority, uh, we also do so in light of the history of the church, uh, because the church, uh, you know, on these issues has interpreted scripture and tried to understand God's authoritative revelation. And so we don't uh, come to uh, do Christology apart from Scripture, but also uh, by also not apart from standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us as well. But uh, tradition and historical theology are always subservient to Scripture, yet uh, are very very important in helping us understand, uh, you know, who Jesus is and how He's presented in in God's Word. So those are the key foundations, right? So we have to work from the Scripture outwards. We have to say. Uh, even in describing Jesus's, you know, how he's described the New Testament. Uh, think of the opening verse of Matthew 1. He is the, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That is, you can't even make sense of that apart from uh, the Old Testament, the unfolding covenants, um, you know, all the way back to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. I mean, so you need a whole Bible. That's the foundation to properly understand the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of our own imagination. Amen. And piggybacking off of a part of your answer to the previous question, throughout the history of the church, there have been various views, some of which and, and many of which have been heretical. So can you spend some time describing some of these, such as Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Monophysitism, and Arianism? Yeah, those are those have been sort of the classic uh, what we say false teachings, and we call them heresies, rightly. Um, and uh, all of them have, in in one sense, they've tried to 
uh, understand the biblical presentation of Christ, but they at you know at certain points and and sometimes at many points get get what the Bible is actually saying wrong. So uh, as you work from the entire Old Testament to the New, uh, as you start with say a Genesis one one, which gives us immediately the uh, creator creature distinction, so that god in himself is is not the creation the creation is not god i mean this sets the parameters to an entire biblical presentation of christ so as you work in the history of the church you know you've come uh, primarily first to arianism which uh you know denied the deity of christ so arianism was the first one of the first heresies of the church that the council of nicaea had to deal with in 325 and uh, they came along and they took the new testament presentation of christ built upon the old testament but they viewed the son of god as a mere creature he was the first creation uh, a part of creation the firstborn so they appealed to colossians 1 uh, 15 16 he's the firstborn of creation they took that as first in time uh, he was created by the will of god he was not one with the father he was not god equal to father so you have Basically, uh, a, a monotheistic view of God, but it's Unitarian. There is no uh, triune son. There is no uh, second person of the Godhead, uh, work of the, the person of the spirit. So they make the son a creature. And that just doesn't fit with uh, all of the Old Testament. And it doesn't fit with uh, the New Testament. Uh, think of John 1, 1, where you have a distinction between the word and the father, the word and God, yet the, the word is God. And so Arianism was rejected rightly. It was really paganism, right? Because it uh, made a created uh, person, the son, uh, almost divinized uh, or brought into somehow the divine life. But he was not God equal to father from eternity. He was on the, what we say, the creation side of things, not the creator uh, side. And so Arianism was, was rightly rejected. You do not have a redeemer uh, with Arianism. And then as the doctrine of the Trinity was really hammered out at Nicaea, and particularly what brought that about was wrestling with uh, the deity of Christ, that he was God equal uh, with the Father. Uh, then you had later Christological heresies. So most of those heresies, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Monophysism, uh, they operated with the Trinity. They, uh, so they weren't Arian in that way. They wanted to affirm the full deity of the Son and, and in some sense, his humanity. But when they put the pieces together, something got lost. And so you think of Apollinarianism. Uh, so when they argued that uh, Apollinarius was a staunch defender of the deity of Christ, of Nicaea, and so on, the Trinity, yet when uh, Apollinarius uh, thought that the Word became flesh or the Son of God took to himself a human nature that uh, he took to himself uh, in incomplete human nature so the human nature was more it's a bit more complicated than this but uh, he really took to himself a body um, it wasn't a full human nature what we would consider a body and a soul and so he uh, the son of god uh, sort of adds to himself a human nature a body a flesh in that sense but the problem is, is he really doesn't, he replaces the human soul. There is really no human soul. And so you do not have a full, complete human nature so that uh, in the end, 
This was rejected because uh, you could not have a redeemer. We have a body and a soul. We have a human nature that must be redeemed. And we need a redeemer who takes to himself uh, our humanity. And so Apollinarianism was rejected. And then uh, Nestorianism, uh, they held to the full deity, the full humanity of Christ. But they could not uh, conceive of the human nature apart from what we call a human person. So that uh, in the incarnation, the divine son, the second person of the Godhead, uh, took to himself almost a human individual. And what you meant by what, what I mean by that is that he took to himself, um, you know, an entire man in the sense that a human nature plus a human person. And uh, this then created two sort of subjects or two persons in Christ. Uh, when we think of person, Person is a very, very technical sense in, in theology. So the uh, person would be in Trinitarian theology, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the relations between the persons, uh, really functioning as a kind of subject, but uh, without any kind of mind or will placed in, in terms of person. So when you have Nestorianism, adding a sort of a human person with a mind, will, you almost have um, a conflicting subject, right? There's not one person who takes to himself a human nature and, and, and orthodoxy said, no, 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 the word became flesh. The word took him to himself. The son of God took him to himself, a human nature without a human person. The subject of the human nature is the divine son. That's why he can be both fully God and, uh, and fully human. So Apollinarianism was, re was rejected as having an incomplete Humanity and Nestorianism was rejected for having now two persons. And then Monophistism, uh, Monophistism, mono, uh, and fusis. Fusis is the Greek word for, another word for nature. So here, really what happens is when the sun takes on a human nature, there's a kind of blend between the divine nature and human nature. But the problem with this is, this is really going back to a pagan understanding because the creator-creature distinction is absolute in scripture so that even in uh, the incarnate son his human nature is not turned into a divine nature his divine nature is not made a human nature there's no blend uh, the later councils chalcedon would say the natures remain distinct yet they retain their own properties right so a divine nature remains divine there is no change within god the human nature is remains human it's not deified uh, and monophistism tended to blend the divine nature and human nature together. So you get some kind of hybrid. And the church said no to all of these. In the end, it said no, because each of these options ultimately rob us of the kind of redeemer we need and undercut, if you're not careful, either the full deity of the son or the full humanity of the son or the fact that there is a true uh, incarnation, the son of God from eternity, the second person of the Godhead has actually taken to himself a human nature. So those were some of the major points of uh, wrong teaching in the church. And uh, sadly, those those teachings continue uh, today in some form. So Arianism would be closest to, say, a Jehovah's Witness uh, or maybe some kind of Unitarian theology. Uh, Nestorianism still shows itself in you know, in churches and uh, particularly in Coptic Christianity and in Egyptian Christianity and so on. Uh, Apollinarianism has come back in, in, in 
slightly different forms, but it's it's pretty rampant in evangelical circles. Uh, and uh, I, I discuss people like William Craig and others who who have a neo-Apollinarian view. So all of these are are false views that uh, the church has carefully, carefully said, no, 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 you have to account for all the biblical data, and uh, each of these views don't. Hmm. Thank you for taking some time to explain some of the uh, heretical Christological teachings throughout the history of the church. Um, following off of that and continuing to talk about uh, the development of doctrine in the history of the church, what are the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds? What do they teach us about the person of Christ? What is the vacuum in which they were written? And then maybe after you've taken some time answering uh, these questions, how might you recommend Christians utilize these documents for their spiritual edification? Yeah, well, you've got, you got a, loaded, <laughs> a loaded question with all of that in there, right? So, yeah, I mean, when we, when we look at historical theology, right? So as the church uh, is formed in the first century after, uh, you know, the resurrection, uh, ascension, the Pentecost, you know, you think of that first great day in Acts 2 and, uh, you know, thousands uh, respond to the gospel and the church then is spread out uh, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and Jew Gentile come together and so on. Um, you move into the early centuries, the apostles pass off the scene. And uh, the church is is continuing and growing, and and uh, but heresy begins to arise, and uh, so by by 325, when the Council of Nicaea uh, takes place, uh, that's called uh, in order to deal with the Arian controversy. So we talked a little bit about the Arian controversy. Really, there's no doctrine of the Trinity here. There's uh, denial of the deity of the Son. He is a creature. And the, the 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 person of the spirit is is rarely talked of, almost a, you know personification of God or just simply a force. So there's no Trinity, uh, there's no deity of the Son. So Nicaea at 325 uh, comes together and it gives us fully the affirmation of uh, the deity of the Son. So the language there is used because these creeds were written in Greek that uh, the Son is of the same nature as the father and and in greek that's homoousius very very important term and uh, so you have at nicaea really the formulation of the triune god the formulation of father son and spirit now the church is always the new testament teaches the trinity uh, the churches always teach the doctrine of the trinity yet you have a, a, a you know a theological formulation of precision care that is now dealing with the arian controversy and in the Nicene Creed, you have uh, addressing of who the Father is as, as creator of heavens and earth. You have the Son in his description, and primarily the Creed is, is devoted to the Son's relation to the Father, that he is the one who's begotten, um, not made, and that was specifically against Arianism. Begotten refers to the fact that he is the eternal Son. Uh, he is from the Father. We speak of that in terms of eternal generation. He's always been the son. The father has always had a son uh, from eternity, the fullness of relation within the Godhead. So he is begotten as another way of saying eternal generation. He's the son of the father. He is not created, right? He is not made, which was clearly uh, against the Arians. He is of the same nature as the father. So uh, the Nicene Creed lays down very clearly 
Trinitarian monotheism. So there's one true and living God. Uh, he is singular in the sense that he's one God. Uh, his divine nature we speak of in terms of simple. There's no compound uh, to him, uh, no composition. Uh, but he is the one who in that singularity of nature, the oneness of God, uh, exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, that's what the Nicene Creed is, is really giving to us. And it really reaches its fullness uh, at 381 uh, at Constantinople. So what we speak about the Nicene Creed today is really the compilation of 325, 381, and we combine them and we then speak of the Nicene Creed. Because in 381, there was a third article added, which unpacked more in detail the person and the deity of the Holy Spirit. So Nicaea gives us uh, Trinity. You can't have a proper understanding of the person of Christ apart from the Trinity. Uh, the person of Christ drives, in some sense, our formulation of the Trinity, right? Because here's the divine son in relation to the father. So how do we think of Father, Son, and Spirit, who's the one true and living God. So that's Nicaea, and that is so, so crucial and, and foundational. Now, by 381, right, that's all formulated. And by 451, so a number of years down the road, we have Chalcedon. And in between there, there was um, some, you know, the Council of Ephesus, 431, but Chalcedon is building off of Nicene formulation of the Trinity. So they will confess at the beginning of it, you know, we believe with the Holy Fathers and they're referring back to the Nicene Creed. And what they're doing at Chalcedon is spelling out more, not just simply uh, the triune relations of Father, Son, and Spirit, but what has happened in the incarnation. So what does it mean for the word, the Son of God to have taken on flesh, to use the language of John 114. And uh, there's where we get the formulation that the, the son is one person. So that would go against Nestorius teaching. He has two natures, so they're not blended. Uh, he is always what he's always been, the divine son, uh, but he, he now assumes and takes to himself a human nature. And the human nature now, the language of Kelson is really, really important, is that he takes to himself a body and a soul. And uh, that's against the Apollinarian view where there's no really human soul, so that he has a full humanity, so that the person of the body and soul of the human nature of Christ is the eternal son, yet he has a full human nature like us, yet without sin. And it affirms the virgin conception, the sinlessness of Christ, and all of this, the incarnation, is uh, because we need a savior. So he's done this for uh, our uh, salvation, right? So for us and our salvation, he has, has done this. So all of the creeds, Nicaea, Chalcedon, are always giving us a redeemer. And that is what's most crucial. You cannot have a savior and you cannot have the salvation the Bible describes without the doctrine of the Trinity and without the person of Christ who is... Uh, fully God, fully man, who's able to represent us, be our substitute, but he has to be one who's not only human to do that, uh, to fulfill our covenant obligations, but he must also be the one who is God, right? Because he sinned against God. God must take 
his own demand upon himself for us. And so that's what gives us this redeemer. So, you know, you come to, you know, the spiritual use of these creeds and the importance of them uh, in our lives is that they're really wonderful summaries of biblical teaching. You never lose the biblical teaching, right? But they should help uh, formulate in our thinking what scripture is saying. So we need to use them in, in uh, combination with our reading of scripture, our understanding of what the Bible says, yet they give a nice summary. They, we, we, you can use them in the sense of think through each phrase. Each phrase is, is loaded. They're carefully stated to give us the God of the Bible and uh, the Jesus of the Bible and uh, realizing that uh, this is the kind of God that has, this is God who has made us. Uh, this is the kind of redeemer that we need. And uh, without him, we have nothing. And uh, with him, we have an all-sufficient uh, Savior. And so that's how they should be used in our lives. We must, must, must teach these uh, confessions and creeds because, uh, unfortunately, uh, there's so much drift in terms of doctrine of the Trinity. There's so much drift in terms of even understanding the person of Christ. Uh, you're probably familiar with, you know, Ligonier's and Lifeway's uh, state of theology poll that they take every other year that's gone on since uh, 2014. And uh, you look at some of the questions in there on uh, the Trinity and the person of Christ, particularly the person of Christ. And, and you know, those who identify with evangelicalism, about 30% uh, um, think that uh, Jesus is not fully God and that this is what's filling our churches. Or there's the Holy Spirit, about 30% or so, uh, think he's a force and not a person. I mean, there's massive, massive confusion. Or the Arian statement that he is, Jesus is the first and greatest of all created beings. A huge number of evangelicals agree with that. Uh, so that um, we need to return to not only faithful exposition of scripture, but to do so um, with a sound theology and, and use these as, you know, for catechism instruction, for teaching children, families, uh, Sunday schools, and, and so on. That's how they need to be used for theological instruction, edification, and, and that uh, for our spiritual lives. Thinking of the creeds as we have been, um, you you expounded particularly upon the Nicene and the Chalcedonian Creed, and you mentioned the Council of Ephesus, and we might also think of the Apostles' Creed as, as one of those earlier creeds. But what post-Chalcedonian clarifications have been made concerning the person of Christ? Yeah, I mean, uh, there has been uh, some clarifications, and I think what we need to see is uh, Chalcedon is seen as sort of the, the touchstone of orthodoxy, uh, because it gives us really the parameters to think properly about the Jesus of the Bible and make sure we don't, <laughs> uh, I, I have in the book saying, don't go off into the ditch, right? So there's a road that we can stay within, uh, but you can end up in the ditch. And if you end up in the ditch, uh, you lose the Jesus of the Bible and you lose your Redeemer. So you got to make sure that it, the parameters, so the parameters that, that Kelsodon gives to us uh, are, are number ones, but one is that there is uh, one person, that the subject, um, uh, Jesus, is the eternal son of God, right? So he is eternal son from eternity who's fully God he's always been that in relation to the the father and the spirit so the triune God within himself and then ultimately in his works but the son the word 
uh, has taken to himself our human nature so that he's fully God, fully human and one person. Now, that was what Chalcedon gave us and, you know, laid out those parameters and discussed those well. But, you know, a lot of reflection still had to take place on uh, what does that look like? Uh, what does that mean? What about some other issues that show up? So there's a number of sort of after Chalcedon issues, um, particularly the next uh, two councils. So in the history of the church, there's been what we call seven uh, ecumenical councils. The later ones after Chalcedon were mostly dealing with Eastern uh, theology, uh, yet they still function as larger councils for the history of the church. We often don't think too much of them. We usually just think of the first four that run that go through Chalcedon. But um, the, the next two were at Constantinople. Uh, by this time, the uh, the Western, you know, Rome had, had already fallen uh, on the Western portion of the Roman Empire. The capital city had been moved from Rome to Constantinople, which is today's Istanbul. And that was then the Eastern portion of the Roman Empire that continued for another thousand years. So in 553, uh, the Sixth Council, or the Fifth Council, I should say, so the one that followed Chalcedon, the Fifth Council, uh, dealt with just more clarity regarding the hypostatic union. So by the term hypostatic union, uh, this just comes from the Greek uh, hypostasis, which means person. And what was being reflected on here is who is the person of the incarnation or who is we use in the language of the person of Christ. But person there is being used in a very, very specific way to mean who is the subject of the natures, right? So who's the person? And the hypostatic union, the Chalcedon affirmed that it's the eternal son, the divine son, the divine person, the second person of the Godhead is the one who is the subject of the human nature. And uh, this was reflected on more. So hypostatic union was turned into another term that is very, very important known as N hypostatic. So EN was the prefix that was added to, to hypostatic. So N hypostatic. And what this was saying was that the human nature of Christ did not have a human person. So there's no human subject. So this was against Nestorianism. But the human nature was made personal or received its person uh, by the divine son. So that in the incarnation, we have truly one who is God the Son, who is human. So that's why uh, I often like to use the phrase God the Son in incarnate. So he's the Son from eternity, fully God, yet he's now taken to himself a human nature. And so there was more clarity regarding that. So this became very, very important as we thought of the Son of God having uh, two natures now as a result of the incarnation, that the Son is the subject of both natures, the Son acts through both natures uh, in his humanity. He doesn't make that human nature something other than it's not. Uh, he always consistently acts through his divine nature, but that was fleshed out a little bit more. So N hypostatic or N hypostatic union was the term that was used and more clarity brought to just what it means for the word to become or the son to become flesh. And then in, in 681, there was the uh, sixth, council, also at Constantinople, 
and it wrestled with what we call the will issue. And uh, this seems to, you know, to many to be abstract, but it's really not. It's a very, very important issue. So that the question was, well, in Christ, how many wills are there? And uh, the Chalcedon really didn't fully address it, but I, they would have said, if they were ever asked the question, well, each nature has a will. And by will, this was meant capacity or ability. So the triune God only has one will. They only have one nature. So Father, Son, and Spirit act through the same will, power, nature, and so on. But a human nature would have a human will. There were those who said, no, 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 uh, the will must be tied to the one person so that the person is where there is the will, not the natures. But the church rejected this uh, rightly because in the Trinity, this would lead to three wills in God, almost, if you're not careful, three individuals, if you're not careful. And uh, in terms of Christology, you would have no human will. But think of that, right? If the, if the son has no human will, then he can't obey for us in his humanity. And you think of the whole storyline of scripture from Adam to us, right? We are creatures who are called to obey God, indeed, perfectly obey God. Uh, Adam sinned against God. We need human obedience rendered for us. And this is tied to the covenant. We need the active obedience of Christ. We need him to obey and to, to um, obey God's demands and the law for us. Otherwise, we do not have a perfect covenant keeper. And we also need one to, to pay for our sin, but we need one who will will in his humanity. So we need the son of God to uh, obey for us in his humanity. And uh, that's why the church was so, so concerned to say, no, 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 we need two wills. The wills must be placed in the nature. There must be human obedience just as there's a human soul. The, the, the view that, that uh, argued for only one will in Christ was really another form of Apollinarianism. And uh, it showed again up in this council. So that was another development that really laid down orthodoxy that then had continued through the Middle Ages and uh, the Reformation, post-Reformation era. And then, and then one other last issue, which is really, really important. This was a debate in the Reformation, but it goes back way early in the church. There was no council per se that dealt with this, but it was clarified in the Reformation. And this is what was known as uh, the extra, sometimes called uh, the extra Calvinisticum. It's often associated with Calvin and Lutheran debates, Calvinist Lutheran debates over the Lord's Supper. But it's really, really important Christological issue. And uh, the extra is affirming on the basis of, uh, of scripture, that uh, the Son of God, in, in taking to himself a humanity, uh, does not cease to uh, continue to act as the divine Son. Uh, the divine Son is able to act through two natures, fully God, fully human. In his humanity, he acts as human, but he is not totally limited by that humanity. He is also able to act extra means outside of. He's also able to act side of that humanity as he's always done as the divine son. So without the extra, you would have change in God. Uh, without the extra, you would have the divine son being unable to uh, uphold the universe. You think of a Colossians 1, which says that he continues to uphold the universe and that doesn't cease. Uh, you would have a whole refiguring in some sense of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
and uh, you would not have the Jesus of the Bible. So these were sort of post-Chalcedonian developments. Uh, the extra goes all the way back to the early church, but it received further clarity and so on. And this became known as what the church has always held to from scripture in terms of the person of Christ. And uh, the very fact that even you know these discussions which seem so foreign to many of our churches um, seem foreign is that uh, we haven't uh, thought through carefully historical theology and and what the church has uh, affirmed through the ages. I mean, this was standard. So when you read Calvin, uh, it's there. You read uh, John Owen, it's there. You read uh, the the Confessions of the Faith, whether it's Westminster or Second London, it's there. Um, and uh, so that's that's some of the developments, and that is part of what we mean by you know a true historic Christian position on the person of Christ. In part one of this conversation, we talked about the historical development of the doctrine of the person of Christ. Tune in to next week's episode in part two, where we'll talk about a biblical presentation of this doctrine. Grace and peace to you. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.